This is an ABC podcast. It's a scientific fact that nothing's going to make you groan more than jumping on your socials and seeing a really awkward-looking politician trying to get in on a TikTok trend from six months ago. It's weird and, frankly, embarrassing. So why do they do it? And why is nobody telling them, hey, that's weird and, frankly, embarrassing? Well, maybe there's a lot more to this social media strategy. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack. In a bit, we're going to delve into this phenomenon of politicians trying to act just like you. Also coming up, a human rights complaint has been filed over last year's census. What's that all about? First, though. Hack. Absolute rubbish. Simple as that. Rubbish. Essentially, it's not milk. Simple. It's not milk. On Triple J. What kind of milk do you drink? You like an oat... An almond, a soy, or maybe you're a traditionist. It's cow or nothing. Well, what would you think about pouring yourself a nice big glass of synthetic milk? Sounds yummy, because synthetic milk's already been grown in labs in Australia, and it could be on our supermarket shelves in the next couple of years. It's meant to be better for the environment, and it's definitely got some scientists excited But with all these alternative milk products on the market, what kind of impact could it have on our dairy industry? Well, our Tassie reporter April McLennan went out to the dairy farms to find out. Hey, Sam, how are you going? Yeah, really good, thanks. April, how are you? Good. How's the farm life going? Yeah, it's going really well. I want you to meet Jacinta Fialo. She milks almost 1,000 cows on a dairy farm at Meander in northern Tassie. Now, there's a company that says they're going to make lab-grown milk. What do you think about this? It's an interesting concept. Me, personally, I would rather... Drinking milk rather an animal product. To me, that's something that comes from a lab. Like, it doesn't sit right. Even compared to, like, a coconut milk or an almond milk. Like, I would rather something like that. The company I just mentioned is an Australian startup. It's called Eden Brew, and it's been developing synthetic milk at Werribee in Victoria. The CSIRO has even backed the project. But you don't need cows or other animals to make synthetic milk. It's grown using a newish biotechnology called precision fermentation that creates biomass cultured from cells. So basically, they're making fake milk in a lab that actually has the same taste, look and feel as normal milk. But Jacinta reckons this raises questions over who can use the term milk. Do these alternatives need to be called something different? Because I think when you think of milk, you think, oh, you know, I'm having an animal product, but then having an alternative, like by not calling it milk, that kind of separates it. At around four o'clock every morning, you'll find Lizzie Spencer in the dairy milking cows. I'm not a massive fan of early mornings, but it's not it's not bad because I know what I'm doing. So, you know, (laughs) she's from Yorkshire in England and she's doing some farm work that's required to renew a visa. Lizzie's fairly new to the dairy industry, but she's got a few thoughts on the fake milk idea. I personally wouldn't drink it. Like, from milking cows myself, like, it just feels more natural and I think, I don't know, to me, like, almond milk and all those other milks, they're not really that natural and, you know, a lot more goes into it rather than this is, you know, drinking cow's milk. I think that's more natural. About 80% of the world's population regularly eat and drink dairy products. But cows are actually a bit of an environmental problem. They emit a massive amount of methane from farting and burping. 
super gross. But the methane they produce is one of the gases that's speeding up climate change. And livestock actually accounts for about 10% of Australia's total greenhouse gas emissions. Melina Boyovich, who's a PhD candidate at Macquarie University, has been doing some research, looking at mega trends in the global dairy sector, especially with the development of synthetic milk, which offers milk without methane emissions. The average consumer is looking at price. And so there's a lot of conversation at the moment around price parity and price points. So perhaps once these synthetic products can be at the same price point as conventional dairy, there's that opportunity. Um, because at the moment, even with plant-based products, they're generally quite expensive. They're quite artisanal, experimental, and they're not for everyone. Melina reckons the development of synthetic milk could create some challenges for companies that produce milk powder for the ingredient market. If synthetic milk can be powdered and turned into an ingredient in the industrial food processing space, so thinking about foods like chips and chocolate that have milk solids in them. And so I just wonder whether any, the average consumer would be none the wiser to even check where that milk solid came from. In fact, some dairy companies have even jumped on the bandwagon. Australian Dairy Cooperative Norco is backing the Eden Brew project, and New Zealand Dairy Cooperative Fonterra has announced a joint venture to develop and commercialise synthetic milk. The argument why they might do that is to ensure that they still remain competitive in a changing dairy landscape, which is fine, but I think for their members and for people on the ground that are working the land and that have, you know, farms and intergenerational farms and this is their livelihoods. It raises a lot of questions around the viability of existing systems. So where does this leave dairy farmers? Well, for Jacinta, she says there's still heaps of unanswered questions over what impacts this could have on the industry, but she doesn't think cow's milk will be phased out in her lifetime. How would it look if we, you know, went down one of those paths where we didn't have animal products, like, is it sustainable? You know, like, are we, are those other alternatives going to be able to fill the gap? And, you know, what happens to all the people's jobs that are affected and what happens to the animals if we have no need for them? Like, how does, how, how would it even look if you were to, to phase dairy out completely? Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story and we're hearing so many comments on this one. Protac in Canberra says, just call it techno milk, futuristic and exciting. It'll get people really pumped for it. Another person says, give me that science juice. Someone else, if you leave the milk out long enough, it grows on its own. (laughs) Another person, yuck. And somebody else says, yeah, but does it taste like long life milk? Well, I want to find out a bit more about this. And with me to chat is someone who knows a bit about this kind of innovation, Dr. Diana Bogova from Curtin Uni's Sustainability Policy Institute. Hey, Diana, thanks for joining us on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thank you for the invitation. So synthetic milk, it seems crazy to a lot of people now, but do you think really this is going to be where we're heading and we're going to see a lot more of this? Uh, for many people, it uh, sounds crazy, but, uh, you know, synthetic or lab milk uh, farm is a bioreactor in which is cultivated microorganisms genetically engineered to secrete uh, milk proteins. The proteins uh, don't resemble milk. Uh, they are milk identical to the real thing. Isn't it fascinating? Lab-grown milk is a simil- in a similar vein. It's actually uh, to cultured meat. It's a very promising, exciting area of innovation uh, uh, due to technological advancement. And I think truly it can be considered 
as the next uh, food frontier. Technologically innovative companies already started making progress with lab milk. Uh, you had uh, a little bit uh, announced for uh, some of the companies that are working in the area just uh, right before me. Uh, there are other in Australian context, they also CSRO backup uh, startup company, Eden Brew, another OG Food. They're all expected to bring uh, lab milk products uh, in the next couple of years. But I hope uh, we'll get it right, not going toward direction to create Frankenstein food. <laughs> well, we don't want that. We don't want Frankenstein milk. But it's definitely <laughs> exciting that, you know, they can do this. We've got some mixed opinions from our listeners. Somebody says, drinking milk intended for a baby cow is not natural. Another person says, absolutely incredible innovation. Lab milk, get rid of dairy farms. And somebody else says, there are already two many milks. The dairy industry is suffering enough as it is. We definitely don't need another product competing with something that farmers aren't getting a great price for already. I want to know, Diana, do you think that it'd be a good option for people who are lactose intolerant or have allergies? Is there the idea that it could be good for those people? I'm not 100% sure because uh, a lab milk is a laboratory concorded version of cow milk. Combined yeast fermented protein with water, micronutrients, uh, plant-based fat and carbohydrates, uh, sugars. Uh, the manufacturing process is entirely animal-free, which is good, but uh, we can assume that um, uh, it will be an option for um, lactose intolerant or people with allergies because even though it uh, doesn't come from a cow, since flora-made proteins use uh, identical to cow's milk protein, people uh, who are allergic to cow's milk uh, may also experience allergic reactions to lab-grown milk. Uh, this is why in the future when uh, lab milk hits the supermarket, if it hits it, <laughs> it will require... Um, allergen labeling due to the presence of protein derived from dairy milk. Also, the regulatory environment of lab milk will require significant clarification and any changes will be vigorously debated by various interests. Also, despite the environmental benefits, specific nutrients-related information to lab milk is not yet available. This is about to be discovered when the product hit the market. And for those who are lactose intolerant, which estimated around 44% of Australian population, I think plant-based milks would continue to be a better option. Well, it's not just um, milk, right? Like it's all sorts of foods that, you know, could be plant-based and change in the future. I'm wondering how much of an impact changing our diets would have on the environment, whether it be through lab-produced milk or eating more plant-based products. Oh, dietary change uh, definitely will have huge impact on the environment. to put it in perspective, 75% of the global food supply comes from only 12 plants and animal species. Wow. And to this point, meat agriculture, eggs and dairy use the vast majority of uh, the world farmland, according uh, uh, which is, um, you know, to the data, this is accounting to 83%, which means uh, 57% of all food-related greenhouse gas emissions. And we're only producing around 37% of the world protein and 18% calories through its sources. So we definitely need some other sources of proteins that could help. And all of these technologies are helping with this probably. 
with the growing population, we will need something. Lab milk, similar to plant-based milk, is considered environmentally friendly because it eliminates cows from the equation. Compared with the dairy production, lab milk produce, uh, production has a far smaller carbon footprint, lower pollution levels, no animal welfare concerns. And, uh, but we have to, to think about how it is produced because uh, to be uh, truly sustainable with a lower carbon footprint, it would need to be produced with only renewable energy sources and yeah. its water footprint uh, would need to come down. Oh, it's definitely really interesting stuff. I know a lot more research is going to be going into it and you'll be looking at it really closely. Dr. Diana Vogava from Curtin Uni, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. And I've got a lot more messages coming through from listeners. Somebody says, I'm all for synthetic milk so long as it contains the health benefits of real milk. The problem with most milk alternatives is they don't include the benefits that real milk gives us. Somebody else says, the whole natural synthetic thing is a non-issue. It's the same thing and is better for the environment. It's a good thing. We need to stop being afraid of science-based solutions. That's from Natalie. And somebody else says, cow's milk's already sustainable. Grass and food that feeds cows has grown from not dug out of the ground. I'm keen on non-animal products for cruelty reasons, but if you want to save the climate, get rid of fossil fuels. So we don't have an accurate collection of data on sexual orientation. We don't have an accurate collection of data on transgender people. On Triple J. Chances are you did the census last year. You probably remember, it seems a bit annoying at the time, but it's an important opportunity to take a big snapshot of Australian society every five years. The Bureau of Statistics counts every person and household, and this data tells us heaps about the social, economic and cultural makeup of the country. But there's a lot the census doesn't tell us because it doesn't ask. Questions around sexual orientation and gender diversity were missing from the census last year. And now a formal complaint's been filed with the Australian Human Rights Commission on behalf of queer Australians. Let's get into this a bit more now. With me is Gassan Kassissia. He's the legal director at Equality Australia. Hey, Gassan, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dave. What's this complaint that's been made? What are the main issues that are being raised here? So it's a complaint about the failure to ask questions about sexual orientation, gender identity and sex characteristics so that we can tell how many LGBTI people there are in Australia and where they're based. Right. So does the census ask any questions about sexual orientation? Only incidentally, it does capture people who live together and are married or in a de facto relationship and in a same-sex relationship. Um, and it did count uh, people who identified as um, non-binary sex, which in and of itself um, caused lots of confusion for people because they weren't sure what that label was intending to capture, whether it was trying to capture intersex people or whether it was trying to capture people with non-binary genders. Um, so incidentally, it captures some of us, but it doesn't capture all of us. So what kind of questions are um, queer Australians asking to be included in the census? So a question on sexual orientation, which would be asked of people obviously of a particular age, so people 15 and over, um, and it would be a voluntary question that would simply ask people whether they identified as gay, lesbian, straight, bisexual, 
for example. And what that would then give us is you could match it with data, for example, that the census counts on age or health conditions or income and location to work out, for example, when the government is making decisions about services and services that need to be delivered say, for mental health support or those sorts of things, it can actually identify where the populations that need those services are and how many of people will need those services. So it can estimate for the future as well. I mean, some might say the reason these questions aren't asked is so people don't feel obligated to answer them. Like if you're filling out the census with your family but you haven't come out, that could be pretty awkward or upsetting. Is that a fair point or what's your response to that? Well, I think the census already asks a lot of very personal questions like about our religion, our health conditions, our income. Um, And the proposal was actually almost tested um, in the lead up to the last census. And the ABS has a smaller sample survey where they do ask questions of people over 15 years. And with the the online form of the census, people could ask uh, a question that allows them to have, say, their own login. So, Those sorts of privacy concerns are already being dealt with by the ABS through a number of ways and they could have applied the same kinds of measures to questions about sexuality or gender and sex characteristics. But um, unfortunately, what we saw was just a reluctance to even include those topics at all, let alone then work out how you ask them in a way that preserves people's privacy and sensitively. The other thing, just quickly, Gassan, I wanted to ask you about is representation at the Human Rights Commission, because there are specific commissioners for race discrimination, disability discrimination, gender and others, but not for the LGBTQIA plus community. And a Greens motion in Parliament calling for one was voted down by Labor and Liberal MPs last month. Is this the kind of issue that, you know, queer advocates are hoping an office like this could look into? Well, I think it is an emission at the national level and the emission means that systemic discrimination doesn't get looked at when it concerns LGBTI people. And we've seen um, commissioners at the federal level do some incredibly important work um, around things like for women, respect at work, the, the sexual harassment work that was done last year. We've had pregnancy um, looked at and parental leave as a result of commissioner rec- recommendations of other commissioners. So having someone at the commission that is specifically looking at the issues affecting LGBTI Australia means that recommendations can be put to government. Um, And so we would love to see that kind of um, investment into a person who's responsible for our communities and ensuring that those um, voices are actually heard by government as to the, the sorts of systemic issues or programs or laws that need to be changed yep. to treat people equally. Yep. Well, it's something we'll definitely keep on. Gassan Kassisia from Equality Australian, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks very much. And in a statement, the Bureau of Statistics says it's disappointed to hear about the reported concerns, but it is going to work with the individual and organisations involved. Hack. Beautiful doesn't have to be what everyone thinks it is. You're all beautiful in your own ways. And I think being unique is probably the most beautiful thing out there. On Triple J. Imagine your skin colour randomly changing over time. It could happen anywhere on your body at any time. Millions of people around the world are dealing with this condition. It's called vitiligo, and there's still a lot we don't know about it, but the impacts can last a lifetime. Maybe you live with vitiligo or you know somebody who does. 
Well, things are changing. It used to be something people would be really embarrassed about and try to hide, but now there's a growing movement to embrace its uniqueness. Reporter Monty Boval from Northern Tasmania brings us this story. They'll look at me and they'll shake their head or they'll be, like, they've just got such a disgust look in their eyes. You know, sometimes an individual will sit next to me and then they'll kind of look at my skin and be like, oh, and they'll, like, get up and leave. That's 21-year-old Tia Theokoski from Melbourne. She's talking about her skin condition. It's called vitiligo. When I was 16, 17, that's when it started to develop quite rapidly and spontaneously. So I'm, you know, in the middle of high school. I also went to an all-girls school, so that was quite a judgmental environment. So I was kind of living my worst nightmare. Patches of her skin around her eyes, under her chin, on her neck, knees, feet and elbows have faded to a pale white. It happens when the body's immune system attacks the pigment cells in the skin. Instead of attacking germs and infections like it should, it can affect any skin type and occur at any age. We can't predict whether, if left alone, it will over time cause a loss of skin colour all over the body or whether just in certain patches. That's Dr Adrian Marr. He's a dermatologist and is president of the Vitiligo Association of Australia. It is uh, not contagious. It's not a sign of anything wrong with the rest of the the body. It's a condition that, in in that sense, is harmless and benign. Around 1% of the world's population has the condition, which means about a quarter of a million Australians. One of them is me. I have white patches around my eyes and mouth, on my hands and feet, and along my legs and stomach. In the past few weeks, patches of facial hair around my mouth have begun to turn white. It's the first time in a couple of years that there's been a noticeable change in my appearance caused by vitiligo. When there are white hairs, that means that the the immune system has attacked it and gotten rid of uh, the pigment cells in the hair root as well. When I was 14, I went on a family holiday to Dubai. I remember this man came up to us promising he had a cure. Somehow he convinced my parents to buy a tub of honey in what clearly was a scam. The possibility of a cure was intriguing, but Dr. Ma says there isn't one, but there are treatment options. With vitiligo, there's always going to be a significant challenge because there's two steps towards bring the colour back in the skin. So the first is to stop the immune system attacking the skin. That's only half the problem because the other half is then bringing the colour back and that's the difficult part. My experience with the condition is relatively straightforward. I've never really had much of a problem with it, except for the fact the white patches burn extremely easily. I get the occasional stare in public or comment made about it particularly when I was still in school. But Dr. Ma says the impact can be huge. When I speak with people who have had vitiligo for most of their lives, they will almost always tell me about the trauma that it had created and continues to throughout their lives in terms of feeling ashamed of themselves and their body and their skin. So Tia's decided to embrace the condition by taking up modelling, and she's not alone. One of the world's most popular supermodels at the moment is Winnie Harlow, who also has vitiligo. 
beautiful doesn't have to be what everyone thinks it is. You're all beautiful in your own ways. And I think being unique is probably the most beautiful thing out there. But I'm hoping that in kind of promoting awareness of vertiligo and kind of, you know, staying true to myself, you know, especially with like my modeling work when I'm working with brands and doing campaigns and kind of getting that exposure that people become more familiar with it and that will kind of overpower those negative, you know, looks I'll be getting and stuff because people won't be so shocked to see it. They'll kind of be like, oh, she has vertiligo instead of, oh my God, like what happened to her face? Why does she look like that? Hack on Triple J. Monty Bovell with that really personal story. It was produced by April McLennan. Thanks, Monty. It's really important stuff. Hack. There's nothing wrong with going for a run and having a kebab. We're not, we're not making it unlawful to go for a run and eat a kebab. On Triple J. Hey, do you follow many politicians on Instagram or TikTok? Maybe the big ones like the Prime Minister or your Premier. I'm going to be honest, I don't follow many at all, mainly because a lot of the content can be so cringe. Like, remember all of Scott Morrison's curry content and Clive Palmer with all the memes? It's too much. More and more, it does seem like politicians, though, are trying to act like influencers online. They're jumping onto trends and trying to be authentic. But does it work? I want to ask someone who's been looking into this. Cameron McTurnan is a lecturer of media and communication at the Uni of South Australia and he's with us now. G'day, Cameron. Thanks for coming on Hack. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Is it true? Are politicians getting more awkward and outrageous on social media? Um, I think I think it's a bit of yes and a bit of no. There's definitely some politicians who are making content that is specifically designed for social media and probably wouldn't work anywhere else. Um, we see examples of this, as you mentioned, with Scott Morrison, but also strange posts from Clive Palmer where he's edited, edited himself into Kindergarten Cop, or another example from Morrison actually where he's taking a selfie while using the lawnmower. Yeah. This content's actually quite different from kind of what we'd expect from a traditional politician like John Howard or Julie Gillard. Yeah, this idea that politicians are faking authenticity, is it something that we see across the board? Like you mentioned Scott Morrison, Clive Palmer, but other politicians are doing it as well, I would imagine. Yeah, so I guess from my perspective, it's not so much that they're faking authenticity, but it's more they're trying to adapt how they show their personalities to kind of suit what works um, in the media or online. And so, yeah, we do see it. We do see it across the board. I've seen it with examples of Richard Di Natale or um, Barnaby Joyce. But we also see some politicians actually kind of going in the opposite direction now as well. And it's a bit of a recent development. If you look at Anthony Albanese's Facebook, um, he's actually gone in a more kind of formal, traditional style of political appeal than maybe this kind of meme alternative kind of sense of being a politician. So does it work? Do the people, do us, do we lap it up? Um, yeah, we, saw, we sort of do. Um, <laughs> my, study, my study looked at um, seven kind of characteristics that we kind of associate with authenticity, including um, uh, liveness or spontaneity. And of, of the seven traits that we measured, six of them actually showed high engagement from users. Right. Okay. And I mean, the question that a lot of people would have is like, is this good for democracy? What kind of impact does it have on that? Yeah, thanks, Dave. I think this is a really important question. So um, traditional theorists kind of say that democracy relies on people and politicians coming together to discuss issues that really matter. 
Um, and now we do know that politicians do do this on their social media accounts, but at the same time, a large amount of airtime is actually being dedicated to things like memes and selfies and trying to be authentic. So I guess the thing I'd be saying to people is, do we want our politicians to really act like influencers or can we just be a bit boring sometimes and focus on the issues that matter most? Yeah, because I guess if they're too busy learning or trying to show that they can do a TikTok dance, it's less time that they're explaining (laughs) policies, which would be the real concern for a lot of people. And just quickly, like, is it targeted at young people? Um, Yeah, look, we don't we don't know for sure yet. We don't have enough data, but we do know that surveys conducted a couple of years ago did show that young people have been asking for politicians who are more authentic and more accessible. And I think um, if these politicians have been paying attention and listening, I think they're going to be. It wouldn't be a surprise if this kind of appeal is actually targeted and designed for a generation that was kind. Of has been raised on social media. For sure. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff and really interesting research you've done. Cameron McTernan from the University of South Australia, thanks very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you. Someone on the text line says, they're only the same as the rest of the influencers out there, only they can't hide how fake it is as well as the others. Interesting. Hack on Triple J. Big thanks again to Cameron McTernan from the University of South Australia and all of our guests for the Hack podcast for today. That's all we've got time for. I'll catch you next time.